0: Hello my friends, my name is Chris K, and I'm the host of Burner Phone Podcast, an educational series about the world of crime from the people that lived it. In this episode, I'll be talking to...
1: I'm Dan Filippi, and I'm a former black hat hacker and identity thief.
0: Thank you for talking with me today, man. Sorry about being stuck at work.
1: No, that's fine.
0: <laughs> what do you do for work?
1: I'm actually a director of engineering at a, a tech startup.
0: I see. What does what the, the startup do?
1: Uh, we work with media companies uh, to add additional online services for their advertising partners.
0: I see. That's cool. So um, did you grow up in Texas or where would you grow up?
1: No, I grew up in the Northeast, uh, in Massachusetts, in a small town, and um, what's always funny is that I kind of joke that I should have been in Texas the whole time, <laughs> because uh, I was kind of brought up with a, uh, a similar kind of conservative family, but with libertarian leanings, um, very similar to uh, Texan politics.
0: Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's like the uh, home of libertarians right there. It's also the home of that crazy dude, Alex Jones.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you have an interesting mix of people in Austin. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, I would love to visit Austin, man. I've never been, but I've I've heard great things. I've been meaning to get out to the South by Southwest for a long time.
1: Probably the worst time to come. (laughs) Oh yeah, I bet you. I mean, unless you're going to it for the specific events, but you know, it's it's crazy here at that time.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the locals kind of like get tired of that shit too. (laughs) But um. Yeah, so what did what did your folks do for a living?
1: Uh my my dad was uh he worked at big tech companies um for I don't know, 30 35 years, something like that.
0: Oh, so you always had a computer in the house?
1: Yeah, ever since I was well, they had computers in the house before I was born, so <laughs> my whole life.
0: So how old are you?
1: I'm, th- I'm almost 35.
0: Okay. So I'm a little bit younger than you but I probably grew up with like a lot of the same stuff. Like what um what was your first computer growing up?
1: Uh the first computer we had was a a, a deck VT180, which is uh an old digital equipment um terminal that uh had the the giant floppy drives and the oh, wow. you know, tiny monochrome monitor um and actually my my dad still has it. I actually played with it um in the last year or so when I last visited my parents. Oh, that's cool.
0: Yeah, I, I forgot um, what our first computer was, but it definitely wasn't like the old school floppy drive. It was like the 3.5-inch. Um, sure.
1: Yeah, mid-90s maybe. Yeah,
0: mid-90s and Carta 95 style. <laughs> uh, yeah, we went Netscape, through a of- Yeah. of you know, – <laughs> Yeah. yeah and AOL, been- and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, we we had all the, the 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 typical stuff. You know, I grew up in the 80s and um you know, it went from uh you know, dial up. Actually, it was dial up the whole time I lived with my parents. Um but you know, we went through the AOL phase and then uh you know, the the local ISP phase and you know, I probably have some good stories about those things too trying to get free internet access and all that.
0: Right. I remember what we used to do is we we used to just go through the free trials the free trial disk
1: <laughs> yeah you know my my parents are very honest people and and they didn't think it was right to do that yeah. um so they would you know they they were willing to pay for AOL and but me being me i i tried to uh scam some people on AOL out lot of just trying to figure out how to get people's accounts and uh, got caught and got our account canceled so i had to figure out ways to uh to get access for free since my parents weren't willing to pay for it after that.
0: So growing up as a kid, like were you, you were, you were a rule breaker. You were kind of a troublemaker when it came. Was that, did that, was that just in the tech world or did that extend to other, other areas of your life?
1: Um, I don't know. In, in elementary school, I got in a lot of fights, but I, I feel like I got it all out of my system up through like maybe fifth grade. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, once I, once I hit like, 6th, 7th grade, um, kind of got that stuff out of my system. You know, I would still talk back to teachers and stuff, but I was definitely not the kind of person that you would consider a bad kid. Yeah. Were you a good student? No, I wasn't a good student either. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was a solid, uh, you know, B-minus student. Right. Mainly because I just didn't put any effort in. Yeah, yeah.
0: The it just did, the stuff just didn't interest you, it sounds like, either.
1: Yeah, I found it really boring, you know, I, I, for the most part, like, I mean, I had classes I enjoyed, and I did, did fairly well, but I never really studied for things, I never really got good study habits, and um, I never, you know, I never really understood early on, like, why we were doing homework the way we were doing it, and those things, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I just, I kind of slacked off.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm hoping as the years progress, like teaching will evolve where they're actually engaging students in their own unique way that they learn, you know, because I went through the same thing. It was like, you had to teach me a certain way for me to be interested. And uh, otherwise, I was just, you know, zoning out.
1: I had some great teachers, you know, but, I mean, at the same time, it wasn't, I mean, the, the, the classes I had great teachers in, I did a little better at, but still, I mean, I still didn't put a lot of effort in. Um, yeah.
0: So as far as like with, you know, you eventually kind of progressed into the hacking world, but were you always of that hacking mind? Were you always like trying to deconstruct st- stuff and modify tech? And
1: Oh, yeah. I, since I was a little kid, you know, I, I used to, my dad would give me electronics to disassemble. And I learned to solder when I was in like, I don't know, probably first grade or something, kindergarten, I don't know. So I was always playing with electronics when I was a kid and figuring out how things worked. You know. And then obviously when I actually got online, um, that kind of opened a whole new world.
0: Mm-hmm. Were you a gamer back then?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I've always been a gamer. Um, the games I was allowed to play <laughs> when do I was you, a kid. You do know? you remember
0: but, what you used to play back then?
1: I I would play all the shareware games, you know, like, my parents weren't really willing to spend money on games Mm -hmm. very often, but I could play all the free stuff, Um, and so I I generally played that, and I still was, like, still restricted on, like, I couldn't play Wolfenstein very often, they kind of didn't want me playing the super violent games, um, compared to the, you know, the other games of the time, tame compared to, you know, standards of today, but... Yeah, isn't that crazy, man? I, I I'll never forget um
0: a buddy of mine, he had Wolfenstein three D on a floppy disk, and we popped that thing in and, and we were blown away. And then Doom came a little bit later, and then Duke Nukem, and then we were playing like Red Alert on the fifty six K modem, but those games back then blew me away as far as technology. I was just like
1: Oh, oh yeah, it was they crazy. were great. I mean, my dad showed me Wolfenstein. I wasn't really allowed to play it. He would like go down in the basement and play it where I couldn't see it, <laughs> but uh he showed it to me once because he was so impressive of you know at the time and mm-hmm. I think yeah by the time doom came around i I was given you know more freedom. I was old enough then that I could play that stuff but um yeah it was uh it was a really interesting time yeah so um yeah like a lot of people
0: when they think of hackers like most mainstream society like what what would you consider a hacker what is what is the true definition of a hacker
1: well I mean you know the traditional definition is just um, somebody who's curious about the world tries to figure out how things work you know and obviously the the media definition is generally somebody malicious um, more of a cracker you know trying to break into things that kind of stuff
0: and where do you think that influence came from as far as hacking did it come from your father was he the same way
1: uh no, I mean yes in the sense that my dad was always tinkering and and um you know figuring out things and fixing things. I mean he's he's a uh uh electrical engineer, you know, in his background so he's been building stuff since he was a kid and I picked up that and then um I just kind of went online and um you know went from there. Okay. And
0: what do you think pushed you into that direction into scams online what
1: it was you know it was kind of gradual it took kind of a long time you know I mean when I was growing up in that world in the 90s you know there was certainly like um, you know cyberpunk culture and like the, the hacker was kind of like this mythological cool person and you're obviously you're like really susceptible to that when you're like 13, 14 years old. Um, so that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted to be that you know that that kind of cool person who could figure things out and and do that. And so you know, when I was a teenager, I wasn't really breaking into stuff, and I, I certainly wasn't scamming anybody. I, I, you know, I wasn't into that. But it was a kind of a, a long downward spiral. Um, you know, as I got into a later high school. It was, um, you know, the late 90s, and it was kind of the time when, you know, the, the first wave of startups were really hitting the scene. And a lot of them were doing things with with advertising and, and like, revenue sharing with their customers. So, um, you know, some, some people might remember, like, the the, the thing where you would look, have a banner ad open while you're browsing the Internet, and they would pay you, like, 50 cents an hour or something like that. Um, and then there were, like, these Pay to click things where you like click on ads and they would pay you you know ten cents an ad or something to do that, and so I was actually part of a group. this was the first time I did anything like that for money, but uh, we were part of a group that we would uh, write programs to kind of like cheat the system and and get these things without actually having to do what they wanted you to do. We would automate it mm. you know so if there was like clicking ads, we would create clickers that would do it for us, or if it was like you know, being online for hours watching banners, we would have a thing that would hide the banner so you didn't have to see it. And then it would let you open five accounts at the same time so you could, you know, get five times the uh, revenue or something. Okay. So that... I never really made a whole lot of money doing that. I mean, probably, you know, a couple hundred dollars at most altogether. But that was kind of my first experience doing that kind of stuff for money.
0: Yeah, as a kid, I can remember hearing about that, people doing that type of thing. Um, yeah, that's crazy. So that was kind of your your first debut into what you, what you would say is criminal activities in that world, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I get, with money, you know, I mean, yeah. I kind of dabbled. I, I kind of touched on that earlier where towards, um, I guess, uh, the, the mid-90s, you know, I, I had to figure out ways of getting my own Internet access. So, you know, I would use actually the the fake credit card generators to generate credit cards to use with AOL accounts um, and then also like putting in like random made-up bank accounts in, um, and then eventually you know the accounts on AOL would last maybe a week before they would get shut down because they would realize you know they were fake fake accounts and then later on I actually would like I signed up for a local um, internet service provider with just random information I found in the, in the phone book I just opened up the phone book to a random page, pointed at a random name and put that in and signed up for service and just said like, bill me later, you know, send me a bill. And they never even closed that account. I used that account for like a couple of years for internet access. Wow, that's crazy. So that was your first instance of like
0: taking someone's identity.
1: It was, yeah, in a way. I, I actually don't know if he paid it or what What happened, you know, if they just, like, sent bills constantly and never shut the account down. I don't know what happened, really.
0: So I, I read that um, as you progressed that you got into college, you were making fake IDs and selling them?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, I, I got into college. Um, my fr- freshman year, I I kind of dabbled in some credit card stuff, Um there were, again, the, you know, the hot internet startups were, were, were flying then and they were trying all kinds of things. And I found a way where I could like, get a company to send me uh, like a prepaid card and they could reload it with credit cards. Um, so I started dabbling with that. Um, again, I didn't really make that much money doing that. It was more of just like trying out things and kind of beating the system. Um, but then my, my uh, second year of school... I, uh, I didn't have a job. I had like ten dollars in my bank account, and I was trying to figure out like, all right, I, I want to make some money while I 'm in school. And you know the, the thing that clicked for me was like fake IDs. You know everybody wants a fake ID when they 're under 21, there's a huge market. you know it's clearly like uh, an in-demand business. it's a product I can easily sell. Uh, what is it going to take? So I hopped online at the time there was this fake ID forum that had like all the instructions and kind of like had this whole discussion about how to do the holograms and how to do this and how to do that and so I actually took a cash advance off my credit card for fifteen hundred dollars to buy the printers I needed because I didn't have any money and so I ordered the printers I ordered the equipment and then when I got my first within the the first month I guess before I even got my first bill for that cash advance I paid it off Um, that's how quickly I kind of got up and running on that. And then it just kind of took off from there.
0: And these were just IDs? These weren't driver's licenses?
1: Yeah, they were driver's licenses.
0: Oh, yeah. okay, so okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, um, I know it's, it's a hell of a lot harder to, to replicate a driver's license nowadays. Um,
1: um, not really, I mean, it really? depends on the state. You know, yeah. um, they, they add more security features, which just makes it more time-consuming to create them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's harder. Uh, and, it, and it really depends on how good you want to make them. Um, if they're going to actually be used, I mean, the more, let's face it, the majority of fake IDs are used for kids to get into bars. And that's actually the hardest thing, because they actually check them the most mm-hmm. for those u- that use case. You know, they'll have like a, a UV light, or the, you know, the bouncers really know what they're looking for. And so you actually have to do a really good job at making those IDs. Um, but if you're going to use them for fraud, it's actually a lot easier because nobody in the banking industry is really trained what to look for, you know, like the, the, the cases you're going to use them and, and for that, it's actually, you can you can make kind of a, a shitty ID and like it'll pass.
0: That is interesting. I've never thought about it like that.
1: Now, a lot of states actually, I mean, even today, you know, like I'm in Texas, the Texas state license right now is actually still not very hard to replicate I could still make them if I had the equipment. I mean, we're not even talking about expensive equipment. Probably like under $500, and I could start making them. Uh, It's really not
0: that hard. Can you explain the process of of making one?
1: Yeah, it depends on the state. I mean, I can tell you a bit. Like When I was back selling them, uh, I was primarily selling Massachusetts. And at that time, Massachusetts was printed on a standard PVC card so the similar to the cards that your credit cards are on, um, so you actually need special PVC card printer to to make those. So that actually is a bit more expensive to get up and running. And then they also had a standard hologram on the front, which is not something you can make, you know, in a dorm room. Uh, it's 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 a, an actual it's actually a pretty good security feature because holograms require uh, a more complex process to create. But what I did was I, I figured out a way to get it close enough. Um, I wouldn't actually, you know, use those for something that was uh, highly high risk, uh, but they actually passed bars frequently and pretty well. Um, And even in Massachusetts, I actually had a friend from high school who was reselling them in Massachusetts for me.
0: So how would you fake the hologram?
1: I came up with a process, and it was based on other people's process. It wasn't something that came up from scratch, but uh, so I would spray paint the front with a, a clear coat, and that gave it kind of a, a surface to the to the front of the card. And then, when you uh, laminate cards, so the other the other type of cards there are are kind of like laminated ones. And when, so when you have a laminated ID, it has a a, a pouch, right? And that pouch. Um, when you laminate it, it, it thermally bonds to the material that you're putting inside of it. But instead, with a plastic ID, it doesn't bond to it. Um, but what you can do is there's a, there are certain printers that have a clear ribbon. And so you can put um, really fine, uh, like a fine glitter powder on the pouch and then print your design on it with the clear ribbon. And then you can heat transfer that to the spray paint on the, on the PVC card, and the pouch won't stick. But what will happen is it will transfer the glitter and the clear coat print that you did to the, uh, the clear spray paint. And so it looks very similar to Hologram. I mean, if you really know what you're looking for, it's not because it doesn't have that kind of rainbow shape. It has more of a, a single or like maybe two color glitter, like a sheen to it, um, but it was good enough. Did someone teach you that,
0: or did you figure that out yourself?
1: Well, the the pouch, like printing the clear ribbons with the glitter on the pouches, is kind of a standard method for making the um, laminated IDs. So, like Texas is actually a laminated ID. Is how that's how you would make it. Um, so, I kind of took that concept and I said, "All right, how do I transfer those onto a PVC card instead of having them, you know, as a, a laminated ID?" And I came up kind of with the spray paint idea for doing that.
0: Oh, okay. So so what did you what did you move on from there?
1: How much how much money were you making at that point off that record? I was I was doing pretty well. I I started out when I was doing those. I started in my dorm room and I was just selling them myself. And obviously word of mouth gets around pretty quick in a college. I mean I was on a pretty big campus, so you know, the market was very sizable, you know, bigger than I could handle uh myself. And then eventually I had somebody reselling uh, who was uh, you know, a member of one of the fraternities. So he had access to a, you know, a large volume of people that were very interested. Uh, and then I kind of stopped selling direct and all of my sales on campus went through him. And then I had another reseller, like I said, at, a, at another school in Massachusetts who would send me the orders. And he would just you know, email me the stuff and then I would mail the IDs to him. Um, and so I was doing pretty well, you know, I, I charged $50 a piece, you know, and I was probably making, um, I, I don't even know now. I mean, it would make anywhere from like five to 20 a day, um, you know, depending upon volume and everything. So I was doing, I was doing okay.
0: Yeah. I kept you busy. Um, so how did you, how did you get into the, the whole credit card fraud area?
1: Right. So um, like I had mentioned, my my freshman year of college, I kind of dabbled a little bit with the credit card stuff. And and the thing was like, when I originally got into hacking, I knew of credit card fraud, but I always kind of promised myself I wouldn't do it because I thought it was wrong. I knew it was stealing. Like it was just a thing I never wanted to do. And then as I kind of dabbled and got to see it, I realized how easy it was. And then that kind of overtook my morals um, as I kind of went you know down this downward spiral like I said so um, there was a bit of a crossover between the credit card stuff and the fake IDs so the the forums that I was on for the fake IDs there were people talking about credit card fraud as well and so you know I was kind of hearing like what people were doing and you know kind of the methodologies and I was like oh yeah I could probably do this it sounds like a lot more money so I started kind of dabbling with that um, and I got my start with that by getting like the prepaid gift cards and reencoding those with the stolen information and then buying stuff at like Walmart you know that kind of store and it just kind of snowballed from there
0: do you remember what the forms were that you were
1: visiting back then in those days? oh um i I could Probably figure it out. I have a list somewhere <laughs> um, that I made a long time ago. What know, years
0: like, were these?
1: Uh, so this was like um, 2001, 2002. Okay. Um, there was like one pretty well known fake ID forum. And then um, after I moved on to the credit card stuff, that was like Carter Planet, which is one of the ones that was taken down by the Secret Service. Um, and then some other carding forums. I see.
0: So you were, you were obtaining the, the info, the credit card info, in these forums?
1: Yeah, so I did two things um, early on. I mean, there, there's different types of credit card fraud, right? There's um, kind of like uh, online and in person. So like with, with online fraud, you just need some basic info. You need like the credit card number, you know, the, the, the three-digit code from the back, the expiration date, the name, the address, that kind of stuff. And then the other kind, obviously, is in-store where you're having a physical card and you're going and actually purchasing things in person. And I started out with the online stuff. You know, like I said, the, the stuff I did freshman year, I just needed some cards to, um, to reload with, so I just needed some basic info. But the uh, in-store stuff is a lot more complex because you actually need the data off the magnetic strip. And so when I, I was still doing some online stuff, um, and for that I was hacking sites to try to get like, credit card lists. I managed to get a site that had a really big list of cards, and that kind of lasted me for a long time for the online stuff. And then I ran some phishing sites. Uh, you know, this was back before everybody knew what phishing was. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the success on phishing was absolutely ridiculous. Like it, Everybody fell for it.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, back then. Back
1: in the day. You know, I, I, I was working with like, one other person. On some of this stuff, um, not, every, not all the stuff, just like some of the projects here and there. And we set up this site. I, I did all the site design myself. I, I copied PayPal site, and I built like this whole site out that um, seemed very real. It would take you through all the steps um, of like logging in and then like validating your information and all this. And the way I stored the data was I had it emailed to an email account And instead of storing it, like, on the web server in a database or something like that, that actually would typically make more sense for that kind of data, uh, I had it sent through email because if the website got shut down on me, I didn't want to lose any of it. Um, So we set up this email account, and uh, we gathered a bunch of email addresses from around the Internet, you know, using, uh, like, a web crawler. There were a bunch of tools to kind of do this kind of stuff back then before it was um, made illegal by the can Spam Act. And so we gathered this huge email list. I don't even remember how big it was. You know, probably a couple hundred thousand emails at least. And we sent out this email blast with, you know, the, the phishing emails that linked to the site. And within, like, say within 10 minutes, we already had, um, like, a bunch of emails in that email account from people who had filled it out. You know, and we sent it we did this around I would say or maybe around eight eight p m um, something like that uh, Eastern time. and so um, or maybe it was a little earlier, maybe it was like five p m. Eastern time. And so we were kind of getting like West Coast responders because it was like right after um, you know right after they would have gotten home from work, they were opening up their computers and checking their email, and so we just had like all these people in California and in Washington. That we're just like filling this out, and and as it, as time went on, it actually ramped up faster and faster, and we were getting so much email and so many people were responding that we were afraid we were going to max out that email account and get it shut down and lose everything. So I ended up actually shutting the phishing website down so that we didn't like overload this email account. That's how ridiculous it was back then.
0: That must have been a real adrenaline rush. Seeing- oh.
1: Yeah, it was, it was insane. I mean, I didn't expect that. I, I actually stayed up, I think, until like 5 a.m. or something, um, trying to like manage all these emails and get all the data out just in case it got shut down and just like managing the whole server and just I, I stayed up like the whole night doing it.
0: You mentioned earlier obtaining a list of credit card information uh, mm-hmm. that you hacked. What, what site did you hack to get, to get that list?
1: So what I would do um, is I would look for uh, recent exploits for e-commerce sites, and then I would go after e-commerce sites where I knew you know, people were buying things with their credit cards and then exploit those, um, those recent exploits that were released. So I would kind of go through, there's sites where you can find lists of security vulnerabilities and exploits. And I would, I mean, I'm, I'm there to make the money, you know, so I would go and I, just, I would just try to find the easiest things I could find and just try to find sites with common e-commerce um, platforms that had security holes. And then I would just pull the data out.
0: Okay. So you, you, were, you were harvesting all this data. You were figuring out different ways to do it. At what point did, uh, well, you mentioned that you, you started putting the credit card info on these prepaid cards. When did you move on to just creating, you know, fake credit cards? How, and um, how, how did you do that?
1: It wasn't too much longer after that. So, you know, in this time frame, this was probably, you know, 2002 or so. Um, the, The prepaid cards that you could buy, the gift cards, were actually really rare. They were only just coming out, and only a few stores had them. And so I actually had to travel, like, I actually drove down to, like, North Carolina once or twice just to get some of those cards. So it was actually really hard to find them. Um, so, what I would do, and that, you know, I, obviously after that, and I saw how much money I could make, I was like, all right, yeah, how do I do this for myself? How do I make these things? So, I did the research, to figure out what I needed to make the credit cards myself instead of having to use these gift cards. And the other, obviously, the other problem with the gift cards is the card number that's embossed on the card is different than the one that I've encoded onto it. So, anybody who would compare the number on the front of the card to the one you know, on the, the receipt would see that it didn't match. And obviously that's a, <laughs> a potentially big problem um, if somebody sees that. So, yeah, I just, I researched what I needed to do. Um, I found, I needed some printers. I needed an embosser. Um, I already had the encoder because I had bought that to do the other cards. And so actually what I ended up doing, um, at this time, at the time I bought the equipment to start printing my own, uh, I was also doing some identity theft. So, some of the phishing scams I pulled, uh, I would ask for like as much information as I could get about a person. So that would be like social security number, date of birth, address, um, PayPal account. You know, every every little bit of information they would give me, I would take. And what I would do with those is I would use it to access their credit card. Because um, once you have the credit card number and the social security and that kind of stuff, mother's maiden name, that kind of thing. You can typically go and just like either create an account for the credit card if they don't already have one. And you know, back in 2002, fewer people had accounts created and fewer people, you know, checked their co- accounts online. They would typically get a, a printed statement. So I could either just go and create an account for that credit card and then get access to it, or I could just do a, like a password reset on their existing account or something like that. And then once I kind of took over their, their, their real credit card um, online, I could change the mailing address on that card to a drop that I set up uh, a drop address and then I could order a copy of their card so I would order a second card or a copy of it and then I would have a real physical card that was totally legitimate um, with this person's credit line available you know and then I would either use that to buy things or um, do like if I get a pin number I would actually withdraw cash at an ATM Um, so what I did to get my equipment to print my own cards was I took one of these compromised accounts that had a higher high enough credit limit on it, and I actually used that to order the printer. You know, it was uh it was like a fifty uh-huh. five hundred or six thousand dollar card printer that I needed. Uh so I ordered the printer using that. And then uh I I actually paid for the embosser. I won it on an eBay auction and, and paid for that. Um and then I just started experimenting with designs and things and went from there. Yeah, yeah.
0: So you were not only just hijacking people's accounts and redirecting cards, but you were also making them. Um, what was that like, man? Did you get, did you get a high from, from stealing people's credit card info? Because it seems like it's just unlimited money right at your disposal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's a huge high. I mean, like, you, there's, a, there's a couple different aspects to it, right? So you know, ordering stuff online is a lot different than going to a store with a card. Right, So anytime you go to a store in person with either a fake card, an encoded card, a stolen card, something like that, there's always a level of risk. You know, there's a much higher level of risk than, typically, than ordering stuff online and getting it shipped to a drop. Um, but it also has, you know, instant gratification. You don't have to wait. Either you get what you're trying to buy or you don't. Uh, there's no risk of somebody, like, setting you up and waiting at your drop address to arrest you or something. So, Anytime I would do that, like, you have to kind of take that role of that person, and so for me, it was, it was like acting. You know, every time I went into a store with a with a card, you know, I could be anybody I wanted. I could I could be this person. I, I was I was this person. I I needed a new laptop, you know, because my old one died, or for whatever reason, you know, I needed this five hundred dollar gift card, um, you know, for my family or something. You know, so I I got to kind of like play this role, and I, I learned a lot about how people interact and social engineering, you know, setting myself up that if the card does actually get declined or I run into a bad situation, I can set myself up to talk my way out of it, mm-hmm. you know, and get out of there without getting arrested.
0: Yeah. you Have you always been a people person? Someone who can...
1: Um, no, you know, um, I would say that when I was young, I was very outgoing. Then as I went through Middle school and high school, I got a lot quieter, um, and you know, the, I, I've always been the kind of person that that I th- I would say I've been the kind of person that can interact with people reasonably well. Um, but do I do you feel like that,
0: you can read people well.
1: I do, yeah, I definitely do. I read people really well. Um, I read, I, I read a lot of things pretty well, you know, and I, and I do it intentionally a lot of the time, just to kind of keep myself sharp <laughs> and uh, and uh, kind of gauge conversations and and make them more interesting for the other person um, but certainly like in those kind of situations where you're in a store using a card like it's important because you don't want to get arrested
0: <laughs> Did, well, during that time I mean were cards ever flagged
1: oh yeah yeah I ran into a bunch of cases that um, you know I came close to getting arrested a few times You know,
0: so were you ever worried once the card was flagged and you had to talk your way out of it mm-hmm. I mean were you worried about being caught on security camera and then them reviewing it? Did you try to wear a disguise?
1: Um, I never really wore a disguise. Uh, I, I was, I mean, there's always a bit of a worry, but there's a couple of things that, uh, I did that kind of helped me in those situations. So, you know, when you, when you use a stolen card in a store, there's a couple of things that can happen, right? So best case scenario, you buy the thing, you walk out of the store and nothing goes wrong. Right. Um, uh, a simple common case is the card gets declined. That's no big deal. You know, either use a different card or you walk away. You make an excuse. Um, the next worst thing would be something like call for authorization, uh, which is a case where the credit card company has kind of recognized that this doesn't fit the normal spending patterns of this card, and they're supposed to call it in to verify that the information is correct, that the person can answer, maybe answer some questions or their ID matches, that kind of stuff. And so a call for authorization can actually be really dangerous, and you typically try to get out of that situation. Um, But uh, there were some cases where they, like, they called it in, you know, and I got pretty close to being arrested. But in every case, um, the main thing I had was confidence. You know, I had to be that person. I had to act the part of that person. Like, how would I respond to this if this was my real card, you know? Uh, I would argue with them. I would be indignant, like like this is my card. What do you mean? You know, um, and and just like you know, never kind of relent. And and it basically works. You know, the few times that I came close, I still walked away with the card in my hands. You know, they never even took the cards. hmm
0: Yeah, man, that's wild. So, how were you eventually um, caught? What happened? How it go down?
1: Yeah, so when I when I was um when I moved from selling fake IDs to the credit card stuff, I kind of gave up on my my fake ID business. And one of the guys who was reselling for me, I actually at that time I I had like two or three people reselling for me. One of them um was like, "Hey, you know, you're getting out of this, you know, maybe I can take over for you." And so I kind of sold him some of my equipment and kind of let him take over the business. Um and then you know, it came summertime, and there's nobody there at school, so he's not making any money, and he knew I was doing something else, you know, he knew I was up to something, and he's like, all right, I want in, you know, what are you doing? Uh, And so he worked with me for a while, and what I would do is I would give him the, the cards I was printing, he would go to the store and buy laptops and gift cards and stuff for me to resell, and then we would just split the money from reselling it, so it gave me like another way of getting somebody to go out and shop and get more money. And so we did a couple of, um, we went to a couple stores sometimes together so we could kind of like do it at the same time and kind of double up. And we took a trip to uh, a big mall in Syracuse, New York. And, um, we went to a bunch of stores there, got some laptops and things. And, and then we, uh, ended up at a Best Buy and we were kind of, it was kind of late in the day and we just wanted to leave at that point. We just, we we're kind of done. It was the last place we were going And so we went back to the, the, you know, the computer section to get a laptop, and it just happened that the manager of the computer section was the one taking our order that was kind of interacting with us. And so, you know, the the person I was with, he was the one who was doing the, the, the transaction. I was just kind of his friend that was there helping him, and... You know, he was like, oh, yeah, I want this laptop. And then the guy was trying to upsell him, you know, as they do in the store, upsell him on software, upsell him on extended warranty. And he kind of brushed him off. And we were, he was really like, like really urging the transaction, like really trying to make it fast. And that's kind of a red flag for somebody who knows what's going on. Um, And so this manager was was a little, I could tell he was a little, um, it was a little unusual, you know, for him. But, you know, it wasn't a big deal, okay, fine, you know, process the transaction. So he goes to pay, and in this case, the card came up as call for authorization. And at this point, the person I was with, he was not as good at this as I was. If this had been, if I had been there by myself, I would have done my normal, I I, I had basically come up with certain lines that I knew would work, and I, I, I knew things to say that would typically get myself out of those situations. Yeah. But he was new, and he didn't have the confidence I had and didn't have the experience, and he was super nervous at this point, and it was showing like he was shifting, he was actually sweating. You know, he was a big guy, he was pretty overweight, and he had like sweat coming down his face. I mean, it was very obvious to anybody that something was very wrong. And so, you know, we kind of went along with it, and he said, oh, I have to take your card and ID up to the front counter to call this in and we said sure you know go ahead well where's that software you're trying to show us we'll take a look at the antivirus software and so as soon as he walked away with the card we got out of the store you know we basically ran (laughs) we walked as quickly as possible to the nearest exit and got out of there um, because it was just too obvious something was wrong so we leave A couple weeks later I'm at my office, and the Secret Service and Postal Service comes bursting through my door and arrests me. Come to find out what happened was they knew the card was stolen at the store, so they actually took his picture from his fake ID and ran it on the local news trying to catch him, and somebody he, who, who had been a former roommate of his uh, turned him in, and then he turned me in.
0: Okay. So when they arrived at your door, they literally kicked it down?
1: Uh, they didn't force it down. It was actually unlocked. I was at an office. I actually had rented an office space for, for my carding stuff. Um, and it just I usually kept the door locked, so they probably would have had to break it down. But in this case, he had actually stopped in earlier. So they, had, they wanted him to give them uh, evidence that they could use to get a warrant. So he came in um, and got a card from me to go shopping. And um, I had, like, left the door unlocked because he had come in. So in, actually that day it was open and they just came in. <laughs> it, it, they didn't have to break it down. So at this point, how much
0: money were you pulling in from, from all this?
1: It's tough to know because it kind of came in bursts. Um, and I, I never tracked it. You know, it was cash. and um, I was trying to save it up uh, because I was trying to actually get out. I had actually sold... Some of the printers and stuff. uh, At the time, I had been caught, so I was like trying to use up the remaining stock of cards I had, and then that was it. I was going to be done. Um, So I mean, I was charged with uh, like two hundred thousand dollars of restitution, Um, but it was you know it was kind of a it's a combination because two hundred thousand dollars was how much the credit card companies were out, but you know I don't make that much reselling the stuff, so you know make maybe seventy five percent of that at best but then there was a lot of other stuff they didn't catch before, you know. Um, so it's really tough to know. The one thing I did that uh, I did very intentionally was I didn't go absolutely crazy with it. Um, I actually took it a lot easier than I could have. I could have made a lot more money, but I was also very cautious about being caught. So I typically would only go out shopping at stores once a week. I could have gone every day. Um, I would you know, do this stuff on uh, enough. I did it enough that I had everything I, I wanted at the time, you know. Um, but I didn't do it so much that I had like, you know, $100,000 in cash sitting in my, you know, my dresser or something.
0: Yeah. I mean, how many cars during that time, I mean, how many cars do you think you used? How many do you estimate?
1: Um, hundreds. You know, I, I I don't actually have a number. Um but it's certainly hundreds.
0: Yeah, it just—it's strange to me that you could you could run through hundreds of cards, and then once the customer, the the original owner of the the card, finds out that the charge was made, and then they backtrack to the store, it, it seems like, to me like they would have caught you a lot sooner. I how how well, how did you get away the, for so long?
1: The secret is right is that they just don't investigate it. Like, okay. Yeah, one if it, if the dollar value is below a certain threshold the credit card companies just eat it they don't even bother investigating um, I don't know what that current threshold is you know I was told back then it was five hundred dollars um, who knows you know that was third party <laughs> um, but yeah I mean there's a certain threshold where to them they just don't consider it worth their time to investigate and they just consider it a cost of business and nowadays I mean maybe it's even different they, they are much better at flagging um, fraudulent transactions because the computer algorithms to detect fraud now are far superior than they were then. So they'll actually shut down an account much faster now. Um, but I, th- I think that's the main reason, is that they just didn't investigate most of it. And what what were you officially
0: charged with?
1: Uh, I think it was like seven charges. Uh, it was like access device fraud, um... Some other fraud related to like identity theft. Um, it was all, all the charges were around the credit card fraud stuff.
0: So I understand that the Secret Service then approached you and asked you to work for them in exchange for getting a lighter sentence. How did that all go down? What was that experience like?
1: Uh, yeah, so I was arrested. <laughs> Uh, in December of uh, 2004, they approached me uh, early 2005 um, to see if I would be considerate. Uh, and then I actually started working with them in April of 2005. And the the thing is, when when you have a federal case, um, and this is something a lot of people don't realize, you know, you watch TV shows and you don't get the the, the, the way the court system really works. On federal charges, um, you actually can't agree on a sentence. The the sentence is actually up to the judge. And certainly, like, um, a law enforcement organization cannot promise you abs... They can't promise you anything. So I was promised nothing by them. Um, You know, with the obvious situation of the prosecutor saying, yes, we will put this on there that you assisted the Secret Service and make a recommendation but in the end it's up to the judge to, to determine your sentence um, and so uh, yeah I started working with them then I worked with them for two years um, part-time pretty much five days a week um, every evening you know I was going to school I was working and that kind of stuff so I worked they worked with my schedule and uh, I I trained them on how everything worked and kinda got them into the uh, the underground world Yeah. So, what was a typical
0: day like working for them?
1: Uh, What we typically did was we were targeting people on the carding forums. So um, back then, you know, that's like Carter Planet, which is probably the most famous one. Um, So we would kind of go through those forums. We created a number of different personas to um, to try to target people. And you know, I spent early on. I spent a lot of my time training them to understand the terminology. You know the 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 lingo, that kind of stuff. Like how to interact with the people on there. Um, You know, maybe methodology to try to track down people. Um, So, like at the time, for example, a lot of people, um, you would be able to email with people, right? So we would we would try to like have a conversation with somebody. The goal was always to try to figure out who the person was, and we would do like a controlled buy, you know, try to buy credit cards or whatever they were selling and then track them down and arrest them um, so we had to find techniques to to figure out who they were and obviously on a, on, a, on a forum that somebody else hosts and you don't have access to you have no identifying information on them so we would try to get them to do email because email actually attaches your IP address uh, to the email and a lot of people didn't realize this at the time and so if you're using an email client from your computer it would actually use your real IP address often Um, so we actually use that in a number of cases to try to figure out who people were and you know, other techniques as well.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, uh, have you had any
0: sort of, I mean, this kind of, in a way it kind of parallels in the drug world, you know, someone getting caught selling dope, then they turn informant and then they set people up with controlled buys. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had any sort of backlash within, within the community of, uh, Credit card fraudsters or or black hat hackers, or does that even
1: no really exist? I, mean, I mean I mean people it's it's actually it was kind of funny um, because my my trial like i I had a number of of um, court attendances that I had to go to along the way, and so some of those made the news and actually like some of them got discussed on the forum, so it's kind of funny to like see them talking about me <laughs> um, but none of it none of it I mean the thing is like you know, the, the majority of the people are just hackers trying to make money. There, a lot of them are, are not in the U.S. Um, there is a small percentage of organized crime involved, but, you know, they, they don't care. Like, they're not going to go after some some guy in the U.S. I mean, it's not, you don't make money doing that, you know. that It's all about making money and anything that's going to lose you money, like trying to attack somebody or something, like that doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, it, just, it, it doesn't fit their profile either, their M.O. It's like they're trying to stay low-key
1: exactly exactly yeah i mean you want to be anonymous that's a great way to not be anonymous
0: (laughs) right so what do you think talking about like the future i mean the kind of like circling back you you mentioned Mm -hmm. phishing attacks um and then talking about you know credit card fraud and and, in the future it seems to be you know we're paying with our phones and what is the future of this of this world when it comes to that
1: You know, it's interesting. Typically, historically, it's always been, you know, the the hackers and fraudsters have been kind of one step ahead of everybody. But I I do think in some ways the technology is catching up, um, or at least it's getting much harder, right? So like chip and pin, for example, you know, the U.S. is not switching to chip and pin. We're switching to chip. You generally don't need to use a pin. But smart cards are a lot harder to compromise than a magnetic strip. Um, so that's actually a big step forward. There are some, some steps backwards, you know, RFID stuff is pretty insecure. Um, it's pretty easy to skim those devices. That's been known for a very long time. Um, so that's, that's generally not a good thing, but the active NFC wireless stuff from phones is generally pretty good. You know, the security on those things, um, it, it it largely just relies on learning from the past mistakes and going forward and, I, I think we're actually moving in a pretty good direction as far as preventing fraud goes. Um but there's always there's always another scam. <laughs> there's always another way.
0: Yeah, as far as like the phishing world, um I've heard of uh, spear phishing and I've heard of, of vishing
1: mm-hmm.
0: um voiceover IP uh what do you think that how is that going to uh change and how is that going to
1: Spear phishing is definitely a, a very viable way of targeting people and I actually um, recently, thought of a method of spearfishing that I—I I don't know if anybody's tried. I've been thinking of maybe doing some research on it, uh, maybe getting some willing participants. Um, but I'll kind of disclose it here. Uh, so right now, I- in my current role, I hire people, uh, and part of the hiring process here is we have people submit uh, a, a project that they've programmed themselves. You know, so we run their code to see if it meets what we're looking for. Well, that would actually be a really good way of spear phishing. So if you apply for a job somewhere that requires you to write some code, it's typically pretty easy to bury something malicious in that code if it's complex enough. So if you were trying to target a company, for example, like a tech company, trying to get access to their networks, one way you might try to do that is applying for a job and then submitting a code sample to them that they then run, and it's probably going to be run by developer on their own system that has access to the networks and the code and things. And then you have access, right? Because you've just gotten past their, past their, uh, border and, and they're running, they're running your arbitrary code on their system. So, um, there's definitely still ways to attack and we're still seeing, I mean, specifically spear phishing is, has definitely gotten bigger. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that technique that I just set, disclosed there, like that uh, is a way to Target very tech-savvy people who are not going to fall for your standard phishing attempts.
0: Yeah, that would definitely work. I, I thought you were about to say. I thought you were about to say creating a fake company and having people apply, and then them turning over their personal information, and then you using that to exploit.
1: That that's definitely a, a way of getting people's info, and that that's been done. You know, I've heard of that. Right. I never did that myself, um, but that is certainly one way to gather people's information. I mean. There's always going to be a way to get information, you know, um, and, and we, as we've seen, like computer security just in general, while it's gotten better, there's still security holes. You know, there's always people out there trying to exploit them and, you know, you constantly hear about things being compromised, so that's not going away uh, and, and getting that information is not going away. It's just, you know, like the types, certain types of fraud have gotten harder, which just means that people will shift to other things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's crazy, someone someone once said, they were like, uh, the only freedom fighters in the future will be hackers, and, <laughs> and future wars will not be fought with bullets and bombs, but with technology and codes, and it does seem like it's going in that direction.
1: Well, we're already there, you know, I yeah. mean, we already have remote drones bombing people and killing them, uh, right. based on, like, somebody's phone metadata on who they called, so that's, I mean, that's already happening today. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm curious to see what happens too when as as technology is is melded even more with the human body, and how hackers exploit that, you know.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of groups and people experimenting with things like that. I, I haven't really dug into that too much myself, but it's an interesting concept. Um, and uh, you know, there's body modification stuff, and uh, you know, things like that. There, there's some really interesting stuff going on there.
0: Yeah. Well, look, Dan, um, thank you for the interview, man. I really appreciate talking to you, man. Um, Oh, yeah, no problem. Maybe we can do this another time in the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Good uh, talk. to you.
0: Yeah, man, I'll let you go. Talk to you. Thank you.
1: All right, bye.